Our Bible reading this morning is from John chapter 20, verses 1 to 18. And if you're using one of the church Bibles, this is on page 768. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where, where, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, and she told them that, she, then, and she told them that he had said these things to her. There are some events in life that uh, if they didn't really happen, it wouldn't really matter that much. And then there are some events in life that are just life-changing. I'm about to show you one event for me that was life-changing. It was meeting Kathy. Now, I know this is a little bit sickly for this early in the morning, especially when you've been eating chocolate, but just sort of humour me for a second. I remember meeting Kathy for the first time. That wasn't the first time, by the way, in case that looks a bit forward for the first time of meeting her. <laughs> um, I remember meeting her. I remember her saying where she was from, Canada, and one, wondering where that was and asking. I remember at the end of the conversation thinking, she seems nice, even if she does wear strange clothes. For me, it ended up being a life-changing event. But think about this. For my kids, it was even more of a life-changing event, a massive event that would eventually lead to their very existence. And had I changed unis like I'd planned to, but being a typical uni student, I never got round to it, I would have never met Kathy, and my, my kids wouldn't be here right now making noise in the background as we speak. Today, we meet together because of a massive event. As massive as your birth is to you, 
is the resurrection to this world. Have you ever thought about what the world would be like if the resurrection hadn't happened? We wouldn't be here right now. I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be standing here talking to you. And the world outside would actually be a very different place. So today I want us to do two things up on the screen. First, I want us to think about how the events surrounding the resurrection unfolded. And then secondly, I want us to begin to look at what the resurrection means. The first and the clear point of our passage today is that the resurrection happened in history. Now, this might seem too obvious to state, especially if you're someone who already believes in Jesus. And yet it's it's very clearly John's point in this passage. He could have written about how it happened in terms of a kind of scientific explanation, or he could have just given a theological interpretation. But instead, John's careful to to relate the details of what happened, maybe some details that are a bit funny sounding to us. Why? Why is he doing that? Well, it's because he's working off this logic. I know it happened, he's thinking. And I'm going to tell you how I came to know so that you too can know. We see this just before our passage today where John wrote about the events of the crucifixion. And then in chapter 19, verse 35, he adds these words, which you can see up on the screen. He who saw it has borne witness. That's John talking about himself. His testimony is true. And he knows that he's telling the truth that you also may believe. In other words, he's saying it happened. I saw it. You can believe it. Just after... John writes about Jesus coming back from the dead. He writes in 2031 these words. He says, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. John wants us to believe by seeing why he believed. And so John's focus in the first half of our passage is on how he first came to believe. The point that first tipped him over the edge into belief. And for him, it was something that might sound really strange to us. It was because of linen. Let's have a look. We sort of saw this starting to emerge in the kid's spot. Let's see it here in our passage. We'll work our way up to it. Verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. Now, wow, the tomb disappeared. I didn't even see that happen. Uh, what's his name? Myopic Mike is actually pretty good. <clears throat> um, I got some pictures of a real tomb. Might give us a bit more of a realistic picture than those cardboard boxes. This is a similar kind of tomb that it would have been to a similar era. Um, you can see the stone there rolled to the side. This is inside, which is possibly more interesting for us. You can kind of see the shelves there where the bodies would be laid. And those holes are the, where the ossuaries, the, the boxes, where the bones after a year would be gathered and put, put um, into a box. There's a drawing here of both those where you can see how the tomb would work. So that's kind of what we're, we've got happening as we come to this passage. But back to our passage in verse 2. So Mary came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, that's John, and said... They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. Mary's theory at this point, did you notice it? 
Her theory at this point for what's happened is that Jesus' body has been taken. She probably thinks by grave robbers. And this isn't a bad theory. The spices and the the linen back then were valuable. I mean, you saw how valuable uh, the linen was on Friday with Jesus' clothes being cast for lots. You know, for us, who cares about clothes, that sort of thing, we just go to an op shop um, if, if, if clothes were, money was an issue. But back then, this sort of thing was, uh, was valuable, and especially the spices, 75 pounds of spices. Grave robbing was actually a common enough crime that Emperor Claudius, sometime around AD 50, had this marble stone engraved, which basically says that tomb robbers would face the death penalty. So Mary's mind jumps to this possibility that the body's been taken, and she can't seem to get this idea out of her head. Peter and John decide to check it out. They both run to the tomb. John gets there first, probably because he's younger, and he sees the linen lying there, but he doesn't go in. But Peter, being Peter, of course, just dives straight in there. In verse 6, Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Why does John include these details? Something about them has struck him, as we see in verse 8. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, it's John talking about himself, also went inside. He saw and believed. What is it that that seems to make John believe? Well, it seems to be the linen and and especially how it was left. Well, at least that's, that's the final piece of evidence that tips him over the edge. And of course, this early, very fragile belief will be confirmed without a doubt in just 12 hours when Jesus is actually standing there physically in front of him, looking at him eye to eye. And Jesus actually makes them touch him and see absolutely without a doubt that he's standing there alive again with them. Now, there's probably other pieces of the puzzle that have fit together for John as well that first made him believe. You know, things like what we've been looking at, the amazing signs that Jesus had performed, Jesus' own prediction of his death and resurrection, Mary reporting the empty tomb, John seeing the stone removed, seeing the empty tomb, and then seeing the linen clothes remaining with the face cloth there, left neatly. See, why is it that linen finally tips John over the edge? It's because what grave robber would leave valuable linen and spices, which Nicodemus had wrapped Jesus in? The body itself's got no value. The linen and the spices were the only valuable thing. Or if for some reason someone were to move Jesus' body to another tomb... John's thinking, why would they first unwrap him? And again, leave expensive linen and spices. If someone did want to move the body and and for some reason they did leave the linen, why would they leave it neatly? They wouldn't risk doing it at the tomb. The death penalty is at stake. They'd unwrap him in a panicked, hurried way for fear of being caught. All of what John had seen from his time with Jesus... And what he was seeing now at the tomb added to one conclusion in his mind. And it was this small detail that tipped him over the edge. 
he found himself believing. Not in a resurrection of a spiritual ideal. I don't know if you know what I mean by this. It's, it's a kind of, he didn't believe in a kind of theme song from Titanic kind of resurrection. Uh, I feel a little, little bit ashamed to know this next line of the song, but I'm going to say it anyway. I'm not going to sing it. <laughs> Every night in my dreams, I hear you, I feel you. That is how I know you go on. It might have been a good movie, that's up for debate. But that's not the kind of resurrection that John's believing in here. It's not a ghostly kind of resurrection, a weak kind of resurrection that John finds himself believing in. John found himself believing in the resurrection of a real physical body. And 12 hours later, like I said, his belief was confirmed as he stared Jesus in the eye. For John... And for all Jesus' followers back then, the historical resurrection, it's a massive event. And it's critical, they would say, that we see that it happened in history. See, at the very least, if you do a proper historical investigation, what you'll see, without a doubt, is that the disciples really believed that Jesus rose from the dead. They were willing to die for this belief. And many of them did. Now, I've heard it said, and, and you probably have too, so what? There are thousands of religious people who die for what they, what they believe in, their religion, who do die for their religion. That doesn't make it true. And that's a good point. But these guys back then, they weren't dying for a concept or a philosophy. They weren't even really dying for a religion. They were dying for a claim to have seen something. I saw a man alive after he died. I saw him not just once, not in a dream, not from a distance, but many times, in many places, in real life. I ate with him. I could touch him. And what's more, there were many of them making this claim, about 500 to 600 people whose lives were transformed by this claim. They were dying for something they saw with their own eyes. And this ought to give any thinking person pause for thought. John's belief, the belief of, of so many held with such a massive impact, was that Jesus rose from the dead. And John says he's telling us so that we too might believe. Now, as we've seen, John tells us how the resurrection events unfolded. He tells us what he saw and why he first came to believe. But he also goes beyond that in this passage by beginning to tell us what the resurrection means. And what he says is that the resurrection not merely happened in history, but it transforms history. John starts to introduce the massive significance of the resurrection through Mary's encounter with Jesus. The disciples go back home. But Mary's returned to the tomb and she's standing outside crying. She sees two angels inside the tomb. They ask her why she's weeping and, and she re repeats her belief that Jesus' body's been taken. But then she becomes aware that someone else is there. And this is where we pick it up in verse 14. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she didn't realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, 
Tell me where you've put him and I will get him. It's kind of ironic here. She asks Jesus himself if he's taken his own body and put it somewhere. And Jesus says in verse 16, Mary. And now finally hearing Jesus say her name, she abandons her tightly held theory of Jesus' body being stolen and she recognises that Jesus has been raised. Verse 16. She turns towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. But while she recognises that Jesus is raised, she hasn't yet properly understood him or what's going on. She calls him my teacher, almost in instinct. And this doesn't go nearly far enough. And something else she does in instinct is to cling to Jesus. Have a look at verse 17. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. This is a difficult verse to understand, I reckon. You know, is Jesus here downplaying her joy? Is he kind of saying, stop that, let go? Is he somehow now untouchable? Well, clearly that's not the case, because in just a few verses later, we see that he says to Thomas, touch me. Why would he encourage Thomas to touch him, but tell Mary to go? Well, it's because with both Thomas and Mary, their understanding of what's going on is wrong. Thomas, he can't believe that Jesus could be raised. So Jesus' response is, touch and see. But what's lacking in Mary's understanding? Mary can't bring herself to let go because she's scared he'll disappear again. Her instinctive response is to cling to him. I reckon you see this all the time. You see it on the news where someone nearly loses a child. What do they do? You see them just holding the child, crying, shaking. It happened to me the other day, actually. One of my kids nearly got run over uh, at a a crossing on a very busy road. It was seriously close. And um, when they got home and told me the story, my instinctive response was just just to hold him and not want him to let him go. His instinctive response was to try and squirm and get out of there. Mary's acting like Jesus is just going to disappear at any moment. And as if she can kind of keep him as he was by holding on to him. She's mistaken. He's not going to disappear at any moment because, as he says, he's not yet ascended to the Father. Till that point, he will be physically present with them, even if it is off and on again. But he is going to ascend to the Father, and that's not a bad thing. Neither is it a loss. It's actually a great joy and a great gain. Things have changed forever, but not in a bad way. Jesus is going to be present to Mary and all his followers by his spirit. And when it comes to Jesus, instinct is not always the best guide for how we respond to him. Mary, by instinct, calls Jesus teacher. Thomas, he had a week to reflect on the resurrection more time to think through what it meant. And when he finally sees the resurrected Jesus after a week, he says, my Lord and my God. The meaning of Jesus' resurrection is that here stands the most significant man in the universe, God's Christ, his chosen king, who is himself Lord and God. 
The resurrection means that our response to Jesus matters because we're not responding to a story. We're not responding to a teacher or to someone of some importance. We're responding to someone of absolute importance. A few weeks ago, we saw this quote together from Abraham Cowper. I asked Jan at the door how to say his name properly, surname. And um, after trying to coach me for about a minute, I still can't do it. It's something like Abraham Cowper in Dutch. But this is what his quote says. And I think it illustrates the significance of what the resurrection means about Jesus. He says, there is not one square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. It's a confronting quote. Jesus has complete authority over every square inch of our universe, over every square inch of our lives. That's what his resurrection says to us. Have you been responding to Jesus out of instinct? Giving him some attention out of instinct? Or perhaps ignoring him out of instinct? His resurrection means we've got to give him more attention than that. If Jesus is resurrected, he is our Lord and our God. Jesus tells Mary to stop clutching him as if he were some kind of dream come true. And what she needed to do instead was to go and and tell the disciples, share the joy. And what Jesus tells her to report to them is actually remarkable. Verse 17, Jesus says, Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Here we see Jesus himself starting to unpack the significance of the resurrection for us. Do you know how many times in the book of John, Jesus talks about God being his father? It's lots. It's like 130 or something like that. It's, it's, it's heaps. What about God as the father of of the disciples though none this is the first and the only time jesus is saying here that his death and resurrection has opened a new world to humanity in what he's done he's opened the way to the father for us to know god as our own father we're caught up in that perfect relationship that jesus has with god See, that the death of Jesus, it's a full stop. It's, it's like a closing of a book. It's a resounding no to human corruption of God's world, what the Bible calls sin. The, the death of Jesus is God saying that our rebellion against him deserves punishment and sin will be ended. But the resurrection, it's the beginning of, of a new volume. It's an even louder yes to what God made this world to be. And what God wants this world to become. It's God saying he's not giving up on us. He's never going to stop loving us. He's not going to let his world be hijacked by sin. Because it's by resurrection that this world will survive. It's the birthing. It's by the birthing of a new humanity out of the old that God will restore this world. Because of the resurrection, history has been transformed. 
God the Son has taken on humanity forever. Jesus is raised as a human, fully God and fully man for eternity. Because he's beat death and beat sin, he will raise up a new humanity who know God as Father, who will never die and who will not be touched by sin. Well, I want to finish just by thinking through what does that mean for us today? What does Easter mean for us? Now, if you're someone who's already thrown your lot in with Jesus, most of us here, you believe in him, then it means that you will one day be raised to be a part of the new world that Jesus is bringing. But we don't have to wait till then to start loving the things that will one day be. Already, we can live with Jesus as our Lord and Saviour. Already, we can live knowing every square inch belongs to him. Already, God is our Father. We can start to live the resurrection life now. Now, of course, we can't do it completely or, or perfectly, but we can begin to live out what a restored world will look like, where God comes first and, and love frames everything that we do. We can begin to function as individuals and in a community of healed relationships. We can be, as Jesus put it, a city on a hill. We can start to shine out already what's to come. But if you're not someone who's thrown your lot in with Jesus, his resurrection means that you can investigate Christianity. And I want to encourage you to do it. See, maybe for you it's, it's hard to believe that it happened. You're not the only one who's found it hard to believe. History is, is full of people who have found it hard to believe. And yet it's also full of people who have come to believe. If Jesus rose from the dead, it means how we respond to him is critical. Jesus' resurrection means he's in charge. He will judge the world. He's going to judge me. He's going to judge you. He's not someone that can be dismissed forever. If you don't think that his resurrection amounts to anything, make sure. It's worth making sure because the consequences of being wrong are huge. But on the other, the other hand, the flip side, Jesus' resurrection means that we can be a part of something awesome, of this world restored, this world without pain, without sickness, without death, without sin. It means we can know God and know him as Father. And it's Jesus' resurrection that promises us these things. And for this reason, it's worth investigating. But finally, for some of us here, you believe Jesus rose from the dead. You've seen what that means. You know it means that he's Lord and God. You know it means he's worth following. But for some reason, you haven't yet fully signed up with him. Now's the time. There's no point waiting. There's no point risking missing out on what's to come because you never got around to it. And I want to give you that opportunity today to do that, to throw your lot in with Jesus. I'm going to pray this prayer that's up on the screen. This is what it says. It just says, Dear God, I want to live with you as my father. Thank you that Jesus died so that my sin could be forgiven. Thank you that he rose so that I could be a part of your restored world. Please help me to keep believing in Jesus as my Lord and God. If that's your prayer too, then join me. 
as I pray. Pray it silently along with me. Let's talk to God now. Dear God, I want to live with you as my father. Thank you that Jesus died so that my sin could be forgiven. Thank you that he rose so that I could be a part of your restored world. Please help me to keep believing in Jesus as my Lord and God. Amen. Now I'm going to give you the chance now to to let us know where you're up to by filling in one of these cards that we all would have got coming in. And this is so that we can help. Because if you have today, like John, been tipped over the edge and have started believing in Jesus, have thrown yourself in with him, signed up with him, then we'd love to, to help you know what that looks like, to live with Jesus as your Lord and God. And more than anything, actually, we would just love to celebrate with you. So fill this out. Let us know that that's you. But if that's not you, but you think you would like to investigate Jesus, then we can help you do that too. We'd love to help you do that too. You'll see there's a couple of options how that can happen on here. One is the life course that we've got coming up. The other is we'd be happy to just read the Bible with you. Tick one of those boxes. Let us know that that's something that you would like to do and we'll be in contact. But I actually want every one of us here today to fill this out. And if you already believe, you've actually got the hard job today. Because you've got the hard job of figuring out what it means to have Jesus as your Lord and God. And I want you to start sort of thinking that through today on Easter of all days. And so I want you, if you're brave, to maybe write on here something like, what square inch you think is the hardest to surrender to Jesus? Or, uh, if that's too confronting, what it is about the restored world that you're most looking forward to. I'm going to give you a couple of minutes. You know, if you're uh, someone who's uh, wanted to start following Jesus today, just write something like, I'm in, or signed up, something like that, or whatever you want. If you want to investigate, tick a box. For the rest of us, the majority of us, what is, it, what is the hardest square inch of your life to surrender? Or what is it that you're most looking forward to? There's some pencils coming around if you need one. Or some of these cards if you don't have one. Take a couple of minutes and then I'll hand over to our next spot.